John Blanchard stood up from the bench. He straightened out his army uniform. As he was studying the crowd of people who were making their way through Grand Central Station, he was looking for the girl whose heart he knew but whose face he had never seen. He was looking for the girl with one red rose. It had all started some 13 months earlier in a Florida ride library. Mr. Blanchard, he took out a book, and he found himself strangely intrigued, not so much with the book, but with the notes that were penciled into the margin. He found himself attracted to the person. He went to the front of the book, and he found the previous owner's name, a Miss Hollis Maynell. With a little effort, he was able to locate her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote a letter introducing himself and suggesting maybe they could just correspond because, you see, the very next day he was going to be shipped overseas to service in World War II. They corresponded for one year and two months, and it became clear from the letters that they were falling in love with each other. At one point, Blanchard requested a photograph. She refused. She felt that if it was really cared about her, it wouldn't make a difference what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from the theater in Europe, they scheduled their first meeting, 7 p.m. Grand Central Station in New York City. She wrote, you will recognize me by the red rose I will be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 p.m. sharp, John Blanchard was looking for the girl who had stole his heart, but whose face he had never seen. And now I'll let you tell, I'll let John Blanchard tell you what happened next. A young woman was coming towards me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers, her lips and her chin had a gentle firmness. And in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I instinctively moved toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40, and she had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick ankled feet thrust into her low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking away quickly. I felt as though I was split in two, so keen was my desire to follow her, yet so deep my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly championed me and upheld my own. And there I stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My finger gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it might be something even more precious, perhaps better than love, a friendship for which I had must and ever be grateful for. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I am Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I am so glad you could meet me. May I take you out for dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered, but the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it's some kind of test. You see, John Blanchard passed the test. He passed the test of a character, integrity, and faithfulness. Do you and I pass that test? 
do we see this morning as we're just several days away from Thanksgiving? I want to just ask you one question. Do you pass the test? Do you? Really? Lord, just ask now, Lord, in these next several minutes that you will fill this place even to a greater measure. Give us soft hearts and ears to hear. Fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. May you just have your way now. May Jesus truly be exalted and set people free. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Most Americans just simply fail to grasp how short this life is and how long eternity is. So many of us are worried about retirement. It's interesting just to read the financial pages. And we're worried about those golden years. Where are those golden years? Will they really be golden? And you know what we're talking about? We're talking about that sliver of life, maybe 20, 30 years max. And what is so surprising is we put so much effort into that little slice of time, but so little thinking about eternity. And you know the Bible is crystal clear. When you die, when you die, you will either go one or two places. You will spend eternity with God in an incredible, incredible, eternal relationship, or you will spend eternity separated from God. And the determining factor simply is one person, Jesus. And we looked several weeks ago as the real question is, do you know Jesus? Can you honestly say, I know Jesus? Because if you can say that, then that means that you love him. And if you love him, that means you're obedient to his commandments. You see, too many people know about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. And there's a huge, huge difference because if you only know about Jesus and you know a couple facts about him, you say, well, I agree about those. When you die, suddenly you'll find yourself standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he'll just say, I just never knew you. I never knew you. Because you see, you weren't obedient to me and loving me. So, What I'd like to do this morning, since we're moving towards Thanksgiving, is I'm going to give you a very practical test. How can I kind of know if I really know Jesus, if I really love Jesus, and I'm really being obedient to Jesus? And here's, I call it the practical test. Here it is, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18. John, put it up. Be thankful in some situations when things are going well. Now, it says, be thankful in all circumstances For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. May I let you understand here in the Greek, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is an absolute command. I am to thank Jesus. I am to thank God. So you know what that tells me? Obedience, thankfulness is not an emotional decision. It is a decision of the will. Please understand that. It's extremely important. that you. We're not talking about emotions here. We're talking about a decision of the will. Now, I'm sure some of you are, you know, uh, thinking, well, why should I thank God? Glad you asked that question. Let me give you the answer. Let me give you four compelling reasons why we should be thankful to God. Number one, he is God and we are not. Number two, he is trustworthy and we are not. Number three, he is good all the time, and we are not. Number four, he loves you. He loves me. So much so that he sacrificed himself so that you and I could live. And because these four things are absolutely true, I can in faith. Now listen to this. I can in faith. I don't care what your circumstances. I don't even care what my circumstances. I can in faith thank him because I know that he is there working his good plan in me and through me 
and in every circumstance that I have. Do you have that kind of faith? Well, you know, a great example of what I'm talking about is none other than pilgrims. John, you can put up the picture. You know, our first Thanksgiving is directly tied, of course, to the pilgrims. And as Paul Harvey is so, was so fond of saying, here's the rest of the story. Just to refresh your memory about them, on September 6, 1620, the Mayflower departed Plymouth, England, and they headed for America. There were approximately 130 people on board, men, women, and children from all walks of life. Interestingly enough, only 41 of them, though, were pilgrims. They were called Puritans, and they were also referred to as the saints. The others, well, they were called the strangers. The voyage took 66 long, grueling days. One person died, one baby was born. On board the Mayflower, there were no bathrooms. There was no running water, and the passengers had to wear their clothes for all 66 of those days. The passengers were rarely allowed above board because of inclement weather. Not surprisingly, many of the passengers suffered seasickness. The stench below the deck where the pilgrims resided, was the stench was absolutely overwhelming. And on top of all of this, many of the pilgrims battled scurvy, hunger, cold, and wet. And for a series of reasons, the pilgrims arrived at America late. In fact, it was close to winter that year. And because of that, almost half of them died. Almost half of them died that first winter. Now, I can't speak for you, but if I had been a pilgrim and I had been there that first winter and someone said, you know, Frank, and they quoted me 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Frank, you need to be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for your life. I think I would have punched your lights out. Are you kidding me? Yet, you know what? That following fall in November 1621, Governor Bradford called for a three-day feast. We now know it as Thanksgiving. And here is the truly amazing thing. And I shared this with you last year, but I thought it was important we start out with this. On the first Thanksgiving, do you know that each pilgrim started with five grains of corn on their plate? Why five grains of corn? They started with five grains of corn on their plate because that was the ration each day during that first winter. Five grains of corn. Now listen to this. This is what it made. Those five grains of corn on their plate on that first Thanksgiving were to remind them to thank God for his provision and care. Wow. Now that puts me to shame because we gripe about, you know, when, 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 when our seat warmer in the car doesn't heat our little tush during its, you know, it's, when it's cold out. Am I right? Dr. Dale Robbins writes these insightful words. I used to think people complained because they had a lot of problems. But I have come to realize they have problems because they complain. Complaining doesn't change anything or make the situation better. It amplifies frustration, spreads discontent and discord, and can invoke an invitation for the devil to cause all kinds of havoc in our lives. In a word, complaining makes us miserable. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 77 and verse 3, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Now, I want you to understand something. Being thankful is no small thing. I mean, it is vitally, vitally important if you really want to live victoriously in this life. Several years ago, the Wall Street Journal, they published an article entitled, Thank You, No Thank You. The article was about research that had been conducted on the effects 
of having gratitude. Here, in part, is what the Wall Street Journal reported in that article. Adults who frequently feel grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not, according to studies conducted over the past decade. They are also less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or alcoholics. They earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and have greater resistance to viral infections. And I love how the Wall Street Journal ended their article. They ended with this statement. They said this, scientific evidence proves don't leave gratitude on the Thanksgiving table. Hmm? Don't leave gratitude on the Thanksgiving table. Well, let me give you this illustration that I think really demonstrates this point. It's actually a true story. There was this pastor, and he was uh, flying home from a speaking engagement. He was kind of tired. He really just wanted to rest and relax, wasn't interested in talking. Unfortunately for him, he sat next to a woman on the plane, and this woman liked to talk. Apparently, she had at least 10,000 words left. And she began to talk about most people's favorite subject, themselves. Now, listen, though. This woman told of a tragedy that had occurred in really her wonderful marriage. About three years previous, her, hus- her husband had this small lump on the back of his neck. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor told him it was malignant melanoma. In six weeks, he was gone. He was dead. She goes, I couldn't believe it. One moment we were having conversations like, should we go to Disney World this summer? And six weeks later... She was alone with her five children. The woman went on to say, for six months, I did really, really good, she said. People in the church loved us. They cared for us. I was trusting in the goodness of God. But then she said, I allowed my thoughts to get away from me. And she said, I began to complain. I turned negative. And she says, before long, I became very vulnerable. The woman began to tear up, and she said, a man came into my life, a man I had known before I knew the Lord. He began to say things to me, things that I wanted to hear, and through her tears, she said, I got so far off track. I got so far away from God. I hurt my family, and most of all, I hurt the Lord. The pastor waited a moment and then asked this woman, so what turns your life around? And the woman said this, please listen, I woke up one day and I thought to myself, how did I get here? How did I get over to this place? This isn't what I want. I don't, I, I don't want to be living here. And then she said she just stopped herself for a moment. And she said it was really just a decision. It was a decision. It was a decision that I wanted to come back to the Lord. And she smiled. She said, you know, I was a prodigal. And then the woman got very excited, according to the pastor. I experienced the Lord's forgiveness all over again, and now I make it a practice to center my thoughts on the goodness of God and all that I have to be thankful for. And I want you to know, my life has turned around. My life has turned around. There is no question, there is a direct correlation to the quality of your life, to the quality of my life, to my ability to experience the presence and the power of God in my life with my ability 
to just begin thanking Jesus Christ and the Lord, no matter what my situation is. All right, I want to move to the challenge because I think, I think it'll be very enlightening. John, can you put up Colossians chapter 1? And that's the last part of verse 11, first part of verse 12. It says this, may you, may you be filled with joy, sometimes thanking the Father. No, it says always thanking the Father. But what I want you to see here, the Greek is kind of interesting. Do you see the word joy? And do you see the word thanking? They are inextricably linked. They're connected. See, if I'm joyful, then I'm going to have the ability to be thankful. Kind of intriguing. You know, and uh, the real question is, you know, as, as, as I, I began to thought it, think about this, is what is joy? Have you ever thought about that? He says, you know, my ability really to thank is predicated on joy. So what is joy? Has anybody ever seen the bumper sticker, Joy Happens? Joy Happens. You've you've seen a bumper sticker that says something else, though. Can't say it here. It's a PG service. Joy happens. See, there isn't any such bumper sticker. You know why? Because joy doesn't just happen. No, no. Joy does not just happen, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and as I thought about joy, I've been reading and reading, and I was looking for definitions of of joy. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion we really can't define joy. So I'm going to give you Frank Ray's dynamic definition of joy. All right, here it is. Here it is. It's based upon this book here. It's a bestseller year in, year out. I recommend it. Joy is the sense, it's the gut feeling that everything is going to be all right because God will come or good will come from what I am experiencing right now, and the best is yet to come for Frank Ray. That is, my def- that, that, that is my dynamic definition of joy. That is what joy is. And I am persuaded, and I am persuaded two things are absolutely essential to experiencing joy. I just want to unpack them very quickly. First of all, joy requires that I have faith. Now listen to this, faith that God has not abandoned me. You know, especially when the chips are down. It's so easy. It's so easy when the chips are down to think God has abandoned us. That's really what the book of Job is about. How many here have read the book of Job? book of Job is fantastic. It's an unusual story because it's a riches to rags to riches story, right? I mean, do you realize that Job was on top of the world? Most people are familiar with Forbes magazine. Every year they publish the 100 wealthiest people in the world. You know where Job would have been? Number one, he's Bill Gates. He's Jeff Bezos. No, really. This, this guy is the wealthiest guy in the Near East. And one day, can you imagine? And I mean, really, in one day, the market crashes. He loses everything, including his kids. I mean, this guy loses everything, and he feels abandoned. That was the worst thing. Job believed God abandoned him, and it didn't help to have Mrs. Job either. (laughs) Curse God and die, Job. Well, thank you very much. I'm so glad I married you. (laughs) His three worthless friends didn't help either, and he felt abandoned. 
You ever experienced that? Sure you have. We all have. Several years ago, Rush Medical Center in Chicago conducted a rather interesting study. The study involved 136 adults who were diagnosed with either major depression or bipolar disorder. And what they found was nothing short of amazing. The study's director, Patricia Murphy, said, and I quote, In our study, the positive response to medication had little to do with the feelings of hope that accompany spiritual belief. What did matter, said Murphy. Now listen to this. What mattered was that the person believed God cared about them. Isn't that something? All right, very quickly, the second thing that is required to have joy, and that is hope. Do you know that it says in Hebrews chapter 6 that hope is the anchor of the soul? Do you have hope this morning? Do you know what hope is? Hope is knowing in here that you know that you know that the best is yet to come for you. Do you really know that? Do you really believe that the best is truly yet to come for you? You know, several years ago, there was this black preacher, and he was officiating at a 16-year-old's funeral. He was tragically shot in in, in a gang-related crossfire. His name was Clarence. The black preacher waxed eloquently on the glories of the resurrection, and the audience was on the edge of their seat. Then the black preacher came down from the front of the pulpit, and he came down where the crowd was, and he confronted them with John chapter 14, and he said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me, said Jesus. And the preacher cried out, Clarence has gone to his heavenly mansion. And then the preacher did something very unusual for a funeral service. He turned and he faced the open casket. And he began to preach to the open casket. And the preacher preacher cried out, Clarence, 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 there were a lot of things that we should have said to you that were never said to you. You got away from us too fast, Clarence. You got away from us too fast. And then the black preacher went on, a litany as only they can do. And he began to talk about all the wonderful things that Clarence had done to serve his Lord, to serve his God. And then after he finished, there was just silence for maybe five seconds. And then he walked right up to the casket, and he cried out, that's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say, and when there's nothing more to say, there is only one thing to say. Good night, good night, Clarence. And then he grabbed the lid of the coffin, and he slammed it down. (laughs) Can you imagine being in the audience? It said the shockwave just went over the audience. And then the preacher turned around and they said, I wasn't there. They said there was a kind of a smile on his face. And the preacher said, good night, Clarence. Good night, Clarence, because I know, I know the Lord is going to give you a good morning. And it's only in a black church you can have. The black choir suddenly stood up and they began singing, on that great morning, we shall rise, we shall rise, we shall rise. And they began dancing and clapping in the aisles. Now, that is joy. And you know, when you have joy, now listen to this, when you have joy, then fear can't be gripping your heart. Negativity can't be gripping your heart. When you have joy like that, gratitude grips your heart. You know, I graduated from a place called Dallas Theological Seminary. At one point, a man by the name of Chuck Swindoll became president And Swindoll said this, and I I thought it was good to finish with these words. Please listen to what he wrote. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the 
impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. The remarkable thing is we have a choice each day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. How's your attitude this morning? It makes all the difference in the world. And I pray you have a marvelous, marvelous Thanksgiving, not because you have a lot of turkey or venison or ham. You know why you'll have a... Um, I, I have seen people have all the turkey in the world and all the trimmings and be miserable. You know why? That's right. No joy. Complaining negativity. What's going to make your thanksgiving is if you have joy in your heart and thanksgiving on your lips. I do pray that. I do pray that for you with everything I have. Lord, I pray that we will really take these words to heart. And I'm really talking about those of us that say that we're truly born again. Being thankful is not an option. Being thankful is an act of faith. Recognizing that you haven't abandoned me and that you are with me and you are working good in that circumstance. And I pray right now that you'll begin to move right now and you will breathe a fresh faith within each one of us and a fresh hope so that we can live in gratitude with an attitude of gratitude. That is my prayer, and I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Hi, I'm Jeff Eckstein, one of the pastors here at Bethlehem Community Church. Welcome to our Sunday podcast, coming to you from the town of Bethlehem in upstate New York in the USA. Bethlehem Community Church is an independent, non-denominational, Bible-based evangelical church that includes people with backgrounds from many denominations. We believe that it is only through the love of the Father, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can come into a personal relationship with God. We are people truly seeking a deeper intimacy with God and with one another. If you'd like to know more about our church, please visit our website at www.bccdelmar.org. There you'll be able to find our Statement of Faith, as well as more about the ministry of Bethlehem Community Church. You'll also be able to submit prayer requests as we are called to pray with and for you. We also would love to hear your story and how you found our podcast and where you're listening from. So please visit our website and send us an email. Again, it's bccdelmar.org. That's bccdelmar.org. Thank you for joining us as we continue our pursuit of knowing God and making him known.